Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your host, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I am fine, uh, and uh, especially so because uh, uh, we get to, uh, uh, today during the podcast, finish our discussion of the Works Progress Administration. Yes, and last time we talked about sort of nourishing the body, right? Physical labor, physical jobs for people to make sure that they could support their families, support themselves. Yes. Now we're going to talk about nourishing the mind and the heart and the soul. Right. The yes. idea that that there are people in the nation whose 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 job is also their passion, but who support us in terms of oh, I say us because maybe listeners, maybe some of you are great Broadway producers and fantastic musicians and, you know, and all those other and great pro- creators of art i am none of those things any (laughs) art that i make looks like it was made by a 12 year old i am like i'm musically completely untalented except for listening and i couldn't act my way out of a wet paper bag if i was absolutely required to do so when they talk about starving artists if i had to be an artist i would be starving because i would not be hired by anybody but this is a different kind of starving artist right yeah because you know what we're yeah, because what we're talking about, listeners, is, again, remember, the WPA was created in response to the Great Depression. Uh, this was one of uh, the Roosevelt administration's New Deal programs. Um, right. And in the previous podcast episode, we talked about how um, uh, the, the basic idea of at least one component of the WPA was to do hard labor infrastructure projects, you know, digging ditches, building sidewalks, okay, uh, uh, constructing buildings, you know, from gymnasiums to museums to libraries. And then we transitioned from to libraries, which is both a physical thing, but right? also, a physical- uh, but, but for the mind, right? Right. So the, the other part of the WPA that I think many Americans today um, uh, don't recognize or don't remember, okay, is what was labeled federal project number one, okay? And this was basically for the arts. And there were five units within federal project number one. Can I tell you that? I went to the National Gallery and I saw these little plaques under a bunch of the paintings that said WPA as the as the sort of sponsor or patron or whatever. And I was like, what what is all that about? Um, So that's part of what brought up this this question that I had for Augie, which was how what was kind of the scope of this thing? And he's like, oh, it's just bigger than art. There were other things. And so. Yeah, There's art, and what else is there? There's you, you have the art project. Okay, so basically you have five units. Art, 
and, and, and what we're talking about here is basically paintings, murals, sculptures, etc. Then you had the music project. Then you had the theater project. Then you had the writer's project. And I'm just going to slightly digress on that fourth unit, the writer's project. When I was a high school student, I had a teacher who actually had us read, okay, some of the um, uh, uh, works that were produced in the writer's project. And then the last one was the historical record survey. Okay. Um, so there were five units. Neil, what you were talking about, okay, it was basically the federal government was the patron for a whole bunch of painters, artists. Okay. Right. And just briefly, if you don't know what the patronage how the patronage system worked, artists would be hired by, back in the olden days, they would be hired by dukes, princes, kings, right? People with money, people with extra money to spare. And somebody would say, paint this wall with portraits of my family or paint a portrait of my family or something, right? You would be hired to do the work and then they would own it. You would not own it, they would own it, but they were your patron. And what and what they paid for was not just your art, but they usually paid for where you lived. You got a certain amount of money for food and that kind of thing. Yes. And then you got money for supplies. So it's not an entirely new concept. We've had patronage for yeah, what was as what long was as there have been rich people and starving artists, we have had patronage. Yeah, what was different in albeit somewhat controversial was the idea that the government would step in right because you were you were talking about well over 40,000 artists okay from painters to musicians to actors to producers writers directors okay who were out of work i mean cuz if americans didn't have jobs to oh, pay for rent, mortgage, food, etc. Yeah, you're not going to the theater. You, you're not going to the theater. You're not going to the concert hall. Okay. Yeah. You you certainly weren't buying art. Okay. Because <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't afford to put food on the table. Right. You couldn't buy bread. You weren't going to buy a sculpture. Like that's just so not gonna, unless entire, it was made of bread. You had entire industries, art industries. Okay that were, you know, also suffering from the depression. So right. on one hand, these were unemployed Americans, just like, you know, coal miners, just like, you know, uh, uh, automobile assembly line workers, steel workers, we, you know, they were unemployed, just like everybody else. But the logic here was, how do we also go ahead and make sure that all of these other Americans who are suffering from the depression, whose morale, emotions, okay, are in the tank, okay, have something, okay, to take their mind off of their suffering. And, well, that, was and part of the, that was part of the logic of project number one. Okay. And each according to his talent, right? Yes. I, if I take a bunch of writers and I have them try to construct a road, oh my goodness! Right? Like, what kind of road am I going to get? 
probably in <laughs> some cases I'll get a good road and in many cases I won't right each according to your talent whatever your talent is if you yes if you had a talent for physical labor or for intellectual labor the, they tried to find something that would use your talent and benefit other people because so it did both things it, it, want- it gave you the dignity of doing the thing you're good at or a thing you could be good at in case it. of like yeah. coal miners who ended up building bridges they're still using their physical labor for the betterment of their of their and, local and i understand that there are area. some of the, there are some listeners to this podcast uh nia um who don't appreciate art and that's fine okay so you might oh, I, don't, have- I don't appreciate some art <laughs> like those things where you have the colored box on side of, on, on top of another colored box I'm like how is that art i could make that that's but, not art but but historically it is for somebody the, through the history of mankind okay art has served a purpose right okay and the federal government stepped in with this part of the wpa and, and by the way folks Federal project number one also gave out grants for artists to teach, right? So when we talk about the art project unit, okay, um, it has been estimated that artists actually taught classes to over 50,000 children and adults, okay? Can so you- they set up art centers across the country. Okay. I mean, to me, that's fascinating. I mean, the music project did the same thing, right? Well, and the art centers served what, like several million people because it wasn't just that you were necessarily going to learn art, but you were also going to do art. Like, yes, people would gather and do things at these art centers. You want to learn quilting? that's not them teaching quilting that's people sitting around quilting together and learning from each other um that kind of thing but i want you to say the name of the guy who was in charge of it um the art project which one the federal art project oh holger cahill holger cahill what a great name I, I love that name. In, in, in fact, my next dog, okay. I, I, I'm going to name it Holger Cahill. Right, like, yeah. That's a I great that name. name. Okay. <laughs> and again, if, if, if any of my students are listening to this podcast, uh, they know how I love names, right? Okay. Uh, okay. Um, I mean, and, you have a um, lifetime nickname. Like, well, I of did, course you it, love name, playing with names. and. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, somebody like me who's been actually known most of his life, you know, by a nickname, okay, uh, that people usually remember. But Holger Cahill, what a great name! Or, or, or the individual who ran the Federal Music Music Project, Nikolai Sokolov, okay, right. That that's a good Russian name, right? It's a good Russian name, but he was the former principal conductor of the cleveland orchestra yes like you would have thought with that name he would have been from the russian orchestra of whatever whatever and he's like yeah i came here from cleveland like whoa okay that's such an american 
Yes. Right? You hear that name and you think, oh, he's got to be from Moscow. And he's like, yeah, I'm from Cleveland. I'm from that, Cleveland. I, that's what I love about the United States. When you're when you have this sort of awesomely cool, clearly from a place kind of name, and name. somebody's like, and somebody's like, yep, nope, I'm from Ohio. <laughs> How is that even a thing? But I also think what's cool about the art project that you put in the notes that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned to people is one of their jobs was to make illustrations and posters of the other art projects. Yes. So like they would make posters for the Broadway shows. So yes. you get this whole like intermingling of the arts because if anybody has ever paid to have someone make art for like a playbill or a, an illustration for a thing they're doing, it can be enormously expensive yes. to have somebody do that. And so the idea that you would use other out of pe work people, people yes. to create your playbill. And then the writers, I am assuming, wrote some of the playbills, right? So that so that this yes. theater production could go forward with all these different parts. And musicians from the Federal uh, Music Project, okay, um, were uh, uh, sometimes loaned out, okay, for theater projects, ah. okay? Okay, you know, because again, even if you don't attend a musical, I mean, if you're talking about a, a, a drama work or a comedic work, okay, there is sometimes, if you will, you know, background music. Well, remember in the 1930s too, unlike films, if anytime you watch a film today, the score, the music in the film tells you what's happening, right? Yes. Donna, uh, Donna. Done. Oh, right. We all Jaws. know what's right. We all know what's coming. Yeah. Somebody's about to get eaten. Right? Like this is about to be or, a, a shark attack. So, so that I mean, it's, it's kind of it's kind of sort of like the 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 beginning music for uh, one of my favorite Hitchcock movies, North by Northwest. Okay, which is this you know frantic okay uh, a juxtaposition of 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 of, of, of noises, right? Which you know. <laughs> primes you for the anxiousness the yeah all the <laughs> anxiousness and frantic chase scenes throughout the rest of that movie yeah very good point right well and john williams there's a reason that john williams has got eighteen thousand oscars and it's because every modern piece of music that you can think of da 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 da, da from um indiana Star Jones, Wars. Like, Star Wars, sorry, thank you. Yes. And the Indiana Jones music and Jaws yes. and right, that's all John Williams. <laughs> Be, because music adds an element that you need. And back in the day when you had live theater, you didn't have any way to have like even in movie theaters, you had music. You had a guy on an on a on an organ, right? The on the Wurlitzer, John Augenbaugh plays well, well, Wells' Citizen it, Kane or whatever, and you and would and have for, to play the music. And for listeners who are uh, uh, who live in Richmond, listeners of the podcast living in Richmond, okay, you can still see that at the Bird Theater, right? Yeah, exactly, okay. and in Atlanta at the Fox Theater. That's right. Some of the okay. old theaters still have all those giant organs. So I'm assuming some of these people played some of that as well. That, they played yes. that kind of music. In addition to one of the things you have listed here is military bands, which I just think is awesome. If the military bands are off with the military, 
then who's going to play the military inspired or related events in the United States? Right. July 4th or anytime the president shows up or right. Like yeah. pomp and circumstance. No, it's not pomp and circumstance. That's graduation. The presidential. Sorry. It is pomp and circumstance when the president shows up, but that's not what they play. That's the graduation theme. But they play the presidential theme. I can't remember what it's called now. Isn't that terrible? Um, but that military band plays that when the president arrives. And that sort of lets everybody in the crowd know, because, by the way, if you ever go to see the president arrive somewhere, you will be standing there for two or three hours before the president shows up. Presidents are never on time. Hail to the chief. Hail to the chief. Thank you. Yes. Um, and so somebody's got to play that. It's one of these guys. It, well, it's three or four of these guys because it's a little group of people who play it. So, yeah. How many how many performances do they give? Oh. Um, the music people? 131,000 performances and programs to 92 million people each week. I mean, they were just running I mean, the federal government was basically just funding a whole bunch of music that was being played across the country. I mean, this is absolutely phenomenal, okay? And it would have been, I suppose, played on the radio as well. Yes. That would have been okay. radio music, too. Didn't they also they didn't, do things like they they learned music, like folk tunes and stuff, to keep those things alive? Oh. Or uh, to write them down, that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's where we start getting uh, um, um, the Smithsonian has an entire section devoted to okay, the evolution of music in the United States. And so much of the preservation okay, of the music in the 1930s was because of the Federal Music Project. Okay. I have so I'm going to need you to go out and find all the tunes for Old Susanna and gather yeah. them up together, all the variations, all the this, all the that, yeah. so yeah. that we know what was regional. Because anybody who thinks that music is not a language is silly. Music is a language. And, and you learn it's got different um, dialects. Dialects, thank you. It's yes. got different rhythm and dialects from all around the nation. So it, that's really cool. The idea of gathering all that up so that we don't lose it because we're losing languages as people who speak them die. Yes. Like I know that there's a lot of small uh, islands and tribes and stuff where there are three or four people who speak the language now. And so now um, language people are going around and recording them as much as they can to try to hold on to at least some of those languages. But in how much have of, we lost? In some of my earliest folk albums that I ever purchased, okay, you there there, some of them actually have the interviewer, okay, at at, at the beginning of the album, say, you know, what's this song about? You can hear ah. them prompt, prompting the musicians, okay? And musicians are like, well, just listen to the song, okay? Which is absolutely hilarious, right? <laughs> I actually have that on like three or four albums where I'm like, who's this, <laughs> who's this other person, right? You know, because, you know, I purchased the album because I wanted, you know, to listen to the folk or blues, right? Right. Okay? I, I, again, guys, 
you've heard me and I talk about this. You ever get a chance, go to the Smithsonian, okay? Go to all um, of them. Okay, go to all of them. Take a month. But, <laughs> or, you know, every time you decide you're going to go to Washington, D.C., right? Just right. pick one. Pick okay? one and go. go it's amazing go. the Americana that, that they have accumulated. I mean, it is a chronicle of the country, right? But you and I both, okay, are just utterly fascinated by the theater project. Okay? Oh, I am completely fascinated by the theater project. I think, first of all, I had no idea that the theater project was, was that there were actually, two, there was a racial divide in the theater project. Yes. That there was a white theater project and what they called, and forgive me if this, is, uh, this language offends anyone, but it's what it was called, the yeah, Negro the Theater. Yes. The Negro Theater Unit. Um, the the which, Federal Theater Project, um, uh, when, right before the Great Depression hit me, uh, uh, Broadway in New York, um, employed um, at 25,000 workers. By 1933, only 4,000 still had jobs. Yeesh. Okay. One out of um, six. So the That's theater- That's terrifying. Project, yes. Okay. The theater project ended up employing about 12,700 people. Okay. They did performances across the country. Okay. They produced over 1,200 plays. They hired 100 new playwrights. Okay. Some of the performers, actors, directors became very successful in Hollywood. Okay. And uh, listeners, you may uh, uh, actually. Uh, uh, be familiar with some of them. Orson Welles. Citizen John, Kane. Yes. John Hausman. Okay. For me, Paper Chase, because Paper I'm of Chase. a certain age. Yes. It was a television show called Paper Chase, but he had a long and storied career before that. Career. And, 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 he, and he was a producer and writer. And then later on in his life, he gains fame as an actor. Right. See, <laughs> see the Paper Chase. You know, see Three Days of the Condor, right? Bert Lancaster. From here to okay. from here to eternity? Yes, he was from here okay. to eternity, right? Okay, Elmer uh, uh, Gantry, okay, which he actually won an Oscar for, right? Joseph Cotton, Canada lead, Will Gear. Wait, okay? Will Gear was the father on the Walt grandfather on the Waltons. The Waltons, okay, but yes. Nicholas Ray, well-known director, okay, okay, in the 1950s and 60s. E.G. Marshall, okay. If you ever watched a movie in the 50s, okay, E.G. Marshall was like in like nearly all of them. He, he was, was one of those, <laughs> Yeah, he was one of those supporting actors that was like in all these movies. I was going to say, and, is he a great character actor? Actor, yes. Okay, and then. One of my all-time favorite movie directors, Sidney Lumet, okay? 12 Angry Men, 
Okay. Okay. Um, I was wondering why the name is super familiar. I mean, this name is super familiar. Twelve Angry Men. Okay, that's why. Okay, Twelve Angry Men. Um, in the 1970s, um, uh, he did uh, 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 Dog Day Afternoon, The Verdict. Okay. Ah. Uh, I mean, okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and interestingly enough, Nia, the theater project was the first of the project one units to actually be terminated. Congress zeroed out the funding in June of 1939. Let's get rid of these actors, these <laughs> actors and these directors, these Hollywood people. Is well, that what that's about? Enough, uh, this is when you first start seeing uh, criticisms of the WPA for um, employing and, you know, uh, communists and socialists. So the writer's project, um, I think it's funny to hire people. Like, I know that the government still hires people to write because you have technical writers for the government, right? You have people yes. who write technical reports. So what happens is somebody shows up with all their data and they dump it on the person and they say, make this readable. And the yes. other person says, okay, and they, that's their job. Their job is to put it into reasonable, accessible language. Um, I didn't and, and realize it, that it, they it, did that during the, during it, this project. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the, the writer's project was uh, led by a man, Henry Alsberg. Um, at one point they had uh, over 6,600 writers in 1936, right? That's a lot um, of writers. That's a lot of writers. Uh, and within three years, they produced 275 major books and booklets, uh, um, including, and this is the series that I actually read, the American Guide series. They produced guidebooks for every state with descriptions of towns, waterways, historic sites, oral histories, photographs, and artwork. Okay, I read these not only in my high school literature class, but my high school history class, which pretty much indicates listeners, okay, the quality of my <laughs> high school library. <laughs> they, they had books produced in the late 1930s. And I'm not going to mention when I was in high school, but nevertheless, <laughs> it was after the 1930s. In case anybody, it was after the 1930s. He wasn't doing it real time. Just, yeah, right? just in case you're okay. you're curious. Yes. Okay. The other thing that they did, and this was really important, and I thought was really cool, they recorded oral histories uh, to create archives like the slave narratives in Nia. Um, as you mentioned a few moments ago, the collections of folklore, okay? Um, and, and again, for listeners, you know, particularly our younger listeners, okay? Um, the idea of folklore, where one generation would basically pass on knowledge to the next generation or the next generation through the telling of stories, okay, was huh. a very important way of, if you will, 
uh, developing culture and maintaining culture in communities. Okay, uh, this idea that at the end of a hard work week, people would sit around on a front porch or kitchen um, or backyard and just tell stories to entertain one another. But the stories usually had messages. Okay, right. they were moral uh, tales. Yeah, I mean, you know, of hope, of resilience. Um, or of, if you do bad things, bad things happen. Like sometimes yeah. they were actually, <laughs> yeah. they were actually fable type stories. Yes. But um, can I, can I mention? Yeah, go ahead. In that, in that vein, when I was uh, very little, um, uh, second grade, maybe third grade, there there's this um, book called The Jack Tales, and it's yes. Appalachian folk stories about yep. a, a character named Jack and all the trouble he gets into. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and the author of that book, a very old man with a very long white beard, came to our school and read one of the Jack Tales to us. Oh my because goodness. somebody at our school knew somebody yeah, he yeah, was yeah, related yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah, it was yeah. one of those things and i'm gonna tell you everybody in the south is related so you just have to at some point you somebody's an 18th removed cousin from you it doesn't matter how how that works but anyway it was um it's that kind of story where as as southerners would say your granny and your papa would sit around and tell these these tales that go back for you know if you ever tried to pin down now who were these people and what actually happened that's not how that worked it somebody knew somebody who was a cousin of somebody and this is what happened to them and then they would tell the story and it was just marvelous and when i was also a little kid my my family sat around and did that um several people in my family were farmers and so in the yeah. evening when there's no work to do and you're tired you're sitting around and then suddenly somebody starts telling stories and the next thing you know it's you know 10 o'clock and time to go to bed but but they also uh created archives like the slave narratives which is really good because at that point we're starting to get the generation who the generation born after the generation of slaves right so we would have lost those stories and those narratives because we yes. don't you know as you get more and more generations removed the the details get vaguer and vaguer more and more vague that's the word not vaguer yes. more and more vague as you go so that's yeah. really um I, i'm glad that they did things like that in the oral histories we're now learning how important oral histories are to yeah because to keeping are... experience alive yeah, because there are a lot of cultures and a lot of communities um, where um, they didn't write things down or they right. didn't know how to write. So the spoken word is is the chronicle. Right, okay? especially when you get to slave narratives. Most slaves were not educated. Yeah, I mean, because their owners didn't want them to become educated. Exactly. Right? Easier um, to keep somebody in chains if they're uneducated. That's right, okay? Um, so it, it is the spoken word narrative where a lot of this information um, is maintained. Um, and then the last one, Nia, you and I have already talked about this with a number of the podcast episodes we've done. The historical record survey, okay? 
It was the smallest unit of federal project one, but they identified, collected and conserved US historical records, okay? At one point they had over 4,400 workers, okay? Whose job was just to go ahead and maintain in large part, historical government records. I mean, that's what they did, okay? Right, like at the state level, at the county level, at the level. local level, they were trying to, well, and even if they didn't, here's what's interesting to me about that. I'm going to go all library geek on you for a minute. Oh, no, no, try no, to, hey, that, that, that's fine, yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to try to hold myself back a little bit. Some of what they did was simply indexed. They wrote down that there was a document. Yes. They didn't necessarily preserve the document itself. And so if the state didn't preserve the document, now we know there was a document, but the document is lost, which is super frustrating, right? Like it's, it's, but basically what they were trying to do was organize us as a country so that we didn't lose important things like, oh, I don't know, the Colorado River Treaty, right? Like that comes later. But, you know, the, the, this idea that, Okay. That there are significant documents that are outside of the serial set, which we have already talked about in this previous episode on. There are significant documents outside of that that still need to be preserved because they affect millions of people. And, and, and again, you have to put this in context. It's hard to go ahead and focus on maintaining records when you don't have a job and you don't have food and you don't know how you're going to go ahead and put a roof over your family's head. Right. Some stuff right? doesn't matter at that point. Okay. You're just Frankly. trying to survive, right? But there we, we had an entire unit whose job was to go ahead and say, yeah, but when we get through this, okay, what, you know, what is the historical record of this part, this very small part of civilization? Right. One of the most marvelous things that they did was a survey of all the portraits in public buildings. Yes. I saw that. Right. <laughs> Somebody thought that they should make a list. Yes. Of every portrait. Yes. In every public building. I, so that, that, that is phenomenal. If you are looking for a portrait of some obscure figure in Missouri, and you're trying to figure out if they if they were ever if their portrait was ever put up in a public building. Then this then there's a list of it. Now, does that mean you can find the portrait? Who knows? Because the portrait itself may be may have been put in an attic somewhere, and may have been lost to a fire. Who knows? But but you would know that there was one. Nia, just think about the process, the thought process of the individual who came up with that, how their mind must work. Right. Okay. Excuse me. Shouldn't we go ahead and catalog, okay, where all the portraits are? <laughs> who, again, <laughs> who thinks that way? But again, that, that's just phenomenal, right? And they now, also had one called America Eats. Yes. Where they chronicled the food 
in the Northeast, the South, the Middle West, the Far West, and the Southwest. Notice where yes. the focus was, was in the West, which I think is interesting. Um, as, a, as a Southerner, I'm like, hey. Uh, but, it, but they not only did they say, you know, well, in the South, they eat, I don't know, sausage gravy and biscuits, right? But they talk about... Um, what the local customs are around eating each that's right okay right so, so like this whole i'm just going to throw out pizza if if you eat pizza with a knife and fork <laughs> some people in the country think that you're a criminal yes. of some kind right yes they're like yep. that is not how you eat pizza you pick up a piece of pizza you fold it in half yep and then you and then you eat from the pointy end backwards Yes. Like there's a very specific way to do it. And other people are like, no, you don't touch your, you cut it with a knife and a fork and you eat each piece with a knife and a fork. And I find things like that fascinating. And clearly so did someone else. Someone else was like, you know what we ought to do? We ought to chronicle not only pizza, but how people eat it. Yeah. I mean, because someone in the future is going to want to know that or, or it well, says I, a lot about us as a culture or what have well, you. Well, I mean, Nia's, uh, uh, Nia, you've heard me, you know, tells so many, you know, stories about um, uh, uh, the cultural differences um, that I recognized when I moved from the north um, to the south, okay, when I moved from uh, Pennsylvania down to Blacksburg, Virginia. Uh, to get my master's and my PhD. And one of the first things I saw that just horrified me was I, I saw people eating pizza with a knife and fork. And I was just like, that's not how you eat pizza, right? Okay. Well, but in fairness, in, in the North, at least in the New York, Pennsylvania area, pizza is thin. Yes. And not super thin. Like you can't so fold the, a piece of Chicago pizza. Well, unless that, that you, I was unless gonna, you're uh, unless you're Arnold Schwarzenegger, I don't think you can. And I was just going to mention fall. that. So the 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 first time I ever went to Chicago, I went there for an <laughs> academic conference. Okay, we went out with a bunch of you know natives. Okay, they're like <laughs> you know, you got to have a you know a slice of you know, Chicago deep dish pizza. And I'm like only a slice, and they're just like, trust us a slice of deep dish Chicago style pizza is a meal, right? Isn't that the one where the cheese is on the top and the sauce is underneath? Yeah. And it is thick and it is huge. Right. And, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the waiter, you know, gave us, you know, knives and forks. <laughs> and you actually needed them. Oh yeah, I mean, because there was no way I was. If you be picked able to, that up, you would have no, been covered in it. <laughs> right? Okay. Why is Augie wearing his dinner? Oh, dumb. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but that's funny that we're, you know. And, 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 and but I mean, the, the way what we eat and how we eat it, okay, um, you know, uh, demonstrates so much about culture, right? But that's what's so cool about the historical yeah. records survey is that it, it goes from something like what are all the portraits in all the public buildings to how do people eat pizza? Like that's a that to yes. me is a cool 
is a, is well, a, and, and, and it so much reflects, you know, enlightenment era thinking. Right. You know, we, we should observe what we do. We should, you know, measure it. Um, and we should all, note it for future. Yeah. In so case it, it changes, we it, should. It, it, yeah. Right. And why should, did it change? You know, snapshot and, and, it in time and try to yeah, figure and, that you know, out. What does it say about us? Because we now are making pizzas differently and we're eating right. differently. <laughs> right. 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 What is, how are we, what is now the definition of pizza, right? Has the definition yeah. of pizza changed over the years? It probably has. Um, I mean, so it, you it, and I are clearly. Listen, you listeners, oh, it's kind of sort of like the debate you have with your friends uh, about whether or not um, um, uh, pineapple should ever be on pizza. No. <laughs> That's not a debate. Yeah, okay. Well, that's disgusting. To, well, I tend to agree with you, but yeah, I don't. and yet there are people who order quote Hawaiian pizza, which has got ham and pineapple on it. I'm like, that is so wrong. <laughs> yeah, but then, right? but then, you know, I'm sure that people think the way I, you know, that I have sausage and green peppers on mine is wrong. So they're like, why don't you just get that in a dog and be done with it? So it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I can see that. And what's great about this country is you can have your pizza however you want to eat. You your want, pizza. right? You know. But, you, 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 oh, sorry. Well, before we go, before we I, conclude. No, no. I just wanted to get briefly to the criticisms because you and I are clearly yeah. for all of this. We're like, yay, oh, this is all yeah, great. Yeah, 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 and but, I, mean, I feel certain yeah. that because you you always carry a dark cloud around with you in your pocket to pull out <laughs> in case in case somebody's too happy about something you can be like you know there's a criticism of that there were <laughs> i'm wow, sure man. that there no 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 it's just your nature to be like wow, not, what a, a, a no, shot across the 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 i'm the, i'm the, just the saying of, of good ship augenblah right i'm sorry <laughs> i didn't mean that to be mean because it's not mean it's there is no good without some questionable something what i like about you every time these things come up is you're like there is no pure unadulterated good something there are trade-offs everything right everything hurts someone or something and, and, you know, and, and again, part of it and, would be that this money was taken away probably from other projects. Well, I mean, there was a significant amount of money that was allocated for the WPA, right? Um, and if you didn't subscribe to Keynesian economics, okay, this idea that the government should spend money during an economic downturn um, to affect the markets, um, well, the WPA was probably, you know, one of the most obvious examples of wasteful government spending. Okay, um, but there were other criticisms. Um, um, some people thought uh, that the WPA um, uh, was, um, uh, you know, part of a Roosevelt plan to create a political machine for the Democratic Party. I mean, oh, I'm sure. I, Don't you think? I mean, well, I mean, it, it, to give you an example, um, uh, and, and I've mentioned my dear grandmother, okay? My grandmother it, it was a child of the Great Depression. Um, but because her father, my great-grandfather, uh, had a job with the WPA for a number of years, she was and remains today a loyal 
voter for the Democratic Party. Oh, it worked on her. Okay, I mean, in, in that. Well, I mean, in, in if, that, you, in if that, your family was starving and they yeah, gave you the, a job. And that's the definition of a political machine, right? Yeah. You use, you use the spoils of government, okay, to, if you will, uh, develop and maintain a base of loyal supporters. Okay, um, right. so that was one of the criticisms. Another criticism, um, and we touched upon this uh, with the um, uh, theater project. Um, there were members of Congress who thought that the WPA was a quote, hotbed of communists, <laughs> unquote. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and truth be told, I mean, Nia, maybe your experience is different. Uh, my experience with artists, musicians, etc., is that most of them tend to fall on the left side of the ideological spectrum. I mean, that's just who they are, right? I mean, uh, oh, free I, expression. They want free yeah. expression for everything and everyone for all things. Yeah, right. right and, like, and, and and you know, my beloved jazz. Okay, I've come across very few jazz musicians who aren't or don't possess anarchist tendencies, right? <laughs> okay. Just let me smoke my weed and play my music. Yeah, right, okay. Just and, leave and, me alone. Okay. And, and I'll and leave you a, alone. And that's a gross stereotype, but it nevertheless. Okay. Still, okay. there's reason for the stereotype. Okay. So there was there was that criticism, yeah. Can, can I ask, at this time in the country, though, weren't there a lot of communists like mm -hmm. communism hadn't taken on these sort of 50s mccarthy cold war era us versus them okay communists and socialists okay um uh, had made major inroads in various parts of the country um i mean remember eugene debs ran as a socialist party candidate for president um five or six times and in one presidential election, he actually accumulated 6% of the popular vote. Okay, 6%. That's huge. That's huge. That's a healthy, okay, minority popular, you know, percentage of the popular vote in a presidential election, right? Right. There were many Americans who had soured on, okay, laissez-faire, unregulated capitalism, okay? But we're but when they're talking about quote hotbed of communism here, they're they're I, I'm assuming that that is a Republican criticism in an attempt to tie Democrats to communists, right? Like these things are all mixed up together with this whole New Deal is all it was communism. A Republican and, Southern Democrat criticism. Oh, okay. Because you get oh right because back then okay, right, yeah many Southern reverse. Democrats were not fond. Okay, of collectivist responses. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, um, they had just yeah. got they had just gotten done dealing with one of those. Okay. Um, a couple more criticisms. Um, distribution of projects. Um, uh, there was the criticism that how they were allocated was politically motivated. Um, and well, and we saw that with the food. 
You get the south yeah. and the northwest, and then you get three locations in the west. Yeah, the south in particular, um, um, uh, uh, southern states complained that Roosevelt was punishing them for not being supportive of the New Deal generally. <laughs> Which maybe he was. I mean, um, yeah. Um, um, so swing states seemingly took priority. Ah. Um, okay. <laughs> well, and I'm assuming that one of the reasons that California would have received so much money is in part because it has a huge number of electors in the electoral, electoral college. college. In I mean, really, then, if, and back then, it was not like today, an overwhelmingly democratic state. I was going to okay. say, wasn't it more hotly contested in the? It was more hotly contested, and if okay. anything, it tended to lean Republican. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, if you want to go ahead and convert a state to your political party, what better way than to use the largesse of the federal government? To do it. I mean, and, and all presidents do this and all political parties do this, right? I mean, right. You know, is, is President Biden going to do some stuff, okay, right before the midterm elections that is going to benefit maybe a handful of Democratic members of Congress who are running in, you know, very competitive races? Sure. Of course. Presidents do that. Of right? course. Okay. And Trump did that, and Obama did that, Obama and Bush did that, right? Like, I mean, it's just a thing you do. That's part of the power of the presidency is, here, let me help you try to get, well, yes. let me help my party try to get more people in yes. Congress. Because parties want to win elections. Yes. Because if you win elections, then you take control of the apparatus of government. Right. right? And probably... The most trenchant criticism was that WPA employees were not diligent workers. Okay. Um, and the criticism here is um, those in the private sector, if they had jobs available, um, uh, struggled to go ahead and find good workers. And in particular, after people worked for the WPA, they had really bad work habits because the WPA, particularly for the hard labor positions, were viewed as made up jobs. Okay. Um, Does that sound even vaguely familiar to listeners now about unemployment and Yes. Workers not wanting to go back to work, right? It's yes. similar. Oh, it's easier for you to take money from the government. Just, look, a hundred years later, still making this argument. Like, yes. Now, there are a whole bunch of economists and a whole bunch of sociologists who will go ahead and argue otherwise, right? Right. That, you know, many people, okay, want a good job paying a fair. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a fair wage, okay? Because there is intrinsic value in doing a hard day's work for a good salary, right? Right. Um, and in 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 one of my rare moments of you know uh, boasting about both you and I, we subscribe to that view, 
Okay. We like yes. our jobs. We like to work hard. Okay. Um, and it's, there's a satisfaction in that. There's a satisfaction yes. in, in when somebody goes, you know, when you see that light bulb moment with a student, right? When they get it and they go, oh, and you're like, yes, that's why I got up this morning. That yes. feeling right there, right? That I feel like, okay, we've communicated and we've accomplished something and learning has happened on both sides. This is one. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, for you, Neil, when, you know, at the end of the day and you look back and say, I had four consultations with students for papers. I helped out two faculty members with a couple of their classes. And I responded to a bunch of, you know, uh, requests that happened during the day. I did some good work today, right? There's right. a sense of accomplishment, right? But the, the fear was um, WPA workers were not well supervised. They basically knew that if they merely showed up, they would get a paycheck at the end of the week, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the acronym WPA uh, was. <laughs> you have some things listed here, which I think is amusing. I want, I would like for you to listen before we, before we close out this episode. Yes. WPA, we poke along. <laughs> WPA, we putter along. WPA, we piddle around. Okay. Um, I love this one. Yes, the last one, WPA, whistle, piss, and argue. <laughs> so stand around, fuss, and go to the bathroom. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it, that's interesting that that uh, that people are perceived as not wanting to work in that in in the WPA, in the especially in the hard labor jobs. I would put to you that that's probably true for some people. They showed up, barely did what they needed to, because you know what? That's true today. In any, in any field, sure. there are people who show up, barely do what they need to do, and go home, right? This is not what they care about. The other thing is, this is not what these people expected or wanted to be doing. No. And sometimes it's hard to make yourself do a thing that you just don't want to do. You weren't hired. This is not what your passion is. It's not what you know. It's not what you care about. They've picked you up and moved you halfway across the country. So it's not even your community that's benefiting, right? Like there's some real complications with getting yourself to, to want to be enthusiastic about that. So I could see I showing up and doing and being grumpy. Now I can't see showing up and not doing the work because... I remember yeah. asking my great grandfather, um, did he like his job or the jobs that he did for the WPA? And he said he initially struggled because it was a, it was a recognition that um, his life's work as a coal miner, okay, came to naught, and that somebody else had to help him out. Right. And he said he initially struggled with that, but he said eventually the fact that he, at the end of a work week, got paid, could cover the rent, and his kids could eat, okay, meant that he was going to do a good job. But initially he struggled, okay, because for most of his adult life, he had been a coal miner. Right. 
right? And that's how he viewed himself. You know, I'm right. one of the, I'm one of the people who who, who digs out, okay, the energy for the country. Right. Okay. And in America, we have a tendency to answer the question, you know, who are you? Oh, I'm a college professor. Yes. As if your job is who you are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, and so, so we do have a tendency to sort of focus on our jobs as representations yeah. of who we are as people. And so if you're doing something that's not your jam, you have to you have the mental space where you have to connect those two things somehow yeah because you're going to be struggling with your identity right. if most of your identity is wrapped up in what you do for work right so anyways i got a little philosophical at the end but nevertheless nia uh i really enjoyed uh our uh, last two podcast episodes um i'm glad you went ahead and uh, and uh uh, had us talk about the WPA because, um, um, you know, that's part of my family's history. Um, uh, and uh, and I think it's it was one of those good things that arose during the, uh, uh, the New Deal as a response to the Great Depression. Um, and, and, and listeners, if you ever get a chance, uh, when you go to a museum and you see, okay, um sponsored by paid for by right. the wpa okay take know a moment and think oh that person an, didn't starve yay yes this, this was an artist that could continue to do their life's work okay um during the great depression yep yep that was oh, yeah or, 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 or think about some of the the museums and buildings that were constructed by the right. WPA, right? And every time you go across a creaky bridge, think to yourself, maybe we need another WPA. Yeah. <laughs> All right. On All that right, note, Nia. we'll talk again soon. All right. Bye, Nia. Bye. You've been listening to Civil Discourse. Brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.